Hazelcorn and Lovewell brought Manatee number 209 to a state lab in St. Petersburg. There, a technician would measure the corpse and take tissue samples for toxicology analysis to determine if the red tide was the killer. Researchers believe the mammals are usually poisoned by ingesting filter feeders such as anemones and sponges, which live on the seagrass manatees graze on. The tiny creatures quickly accumulate brevitoxins from carinia, which can cause seizures or paralyze the manatees' respiratory systems, which results in their drowning. That was science writer Mallory Pickett with an excerpt from her feature article in this month's Popular Science magazine. This is your host, Jesse Hendricks, and thanks for tuning back in for Science, a SoCal Science Writers podcast, where each episode we highlight an article or other SciComm piece from a member of the SoCal Science Writing Group. If this is your first time listening, welcome. We appreciate you joining us. Today's article is a feature in a package that Popular Science dubbed the Florida Problem. Mallory's article is called A New Era Blooms, and it's about a small algal species called Carinia brevis, also known as red tide commonly, and this is capable of forming large blooms full of toxins that affect human and marine mammal health, as well as local economies, and her article also talks about some of the scientists at the forefront of this research. Okay, so I know I've, I've probably said this every episode in some way or another, but I am so excited about this episode um, because when Mallory first told me she was writing this piece, I knew immediately I wanted to do an episode on it because my undergraduate research was actually on Pseudonychia, another toxic species of phytoplankton also mentioned in the article. Uh, thank you, Mallory, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks for so excited you're doing this podcast. Oh, thank you. Yes, it's been very fun. <laughs> uh, so can you tell me uh, and our audience a little bit about yourself and how you came upon writing this particular article? Sure. Um, so my, I guess similar to you, my background was also originally in science. Um, I did my, my undergrad and my master's degree in chemistry. Um, and so for my master's research, I was in marine chemistry, sort of looking at, at corals and some questions around ocean acidification. And yeah, but I started writing while I was in graduate school for the news office. I was at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And the people who worked in the news office there very kindly let me just practice writing and doing some stories with them and gave me a lot of guidance. And then I went to journalism school, but it was actually that connection to scripts that actually ended up leading me back to the story. Because after I graduated journalism school, I kept doing some some work for the scripts news office, writing some stories for their magazine and press releases and things like that. And so I don't remember exactly what the article was. I think it was some kind of news story about an algae bloom that was happening uh, in California and a scientist uh, affiliated with Scripps who was studying it. And I was interviewing her for that story and she was telling me about these algae blooms and she just kind of mentioned that, yeah, it seems like they're getting worse. Uh, it seems like it's climate change, but no one knows exactly why. And at the same time was talking about some other new research showing that some of these algae species, the toxins they produce might actually be more toxic than we realize. And that like the health limits of what is safe to eat, it's possible that they should actually be much lower, that it's possible that they have chronic health impacts in the way that like mercury does. Besides just what we normally think of with algae toxins, which is like paralysis, shellfish poisoning. So anyway, that conversation just really stuck with me because basically what she was saying was that 
This problem seems to be getting worse, and actually it might be an even more serious and dangerous problem than we thought in terms of the impacts on human health. So that was just sort of floating around in my mind for a long time. And uh, yeah, I had originally been thinking of doing a story more on the um, human health impacts and the research on how uh, some of these toxins might have these kinds of chronic impacts. And that was what I, yeah, the story was was supported by a, a fellowship. And when I applied to that fellowship, the Berkeley Food and Farming Fellowship. That was the story I applied with. But then while I was working on it and in the middle of the fellowship, this big bloom happened (laughs) in Florida. And so that was how I ended up shifting my focus to Florida. Yeah, it makes sense what you were saying about uh, it potentially being more toxic to humans because the shellfish, when they filter feed the phytoplankton, from what I know, they bioaccumulate all of these toxins because they're like filtering, filtering. So it would make sense that we as humans would also bioaccumulate those toxins and that would have a long-term effect. Yeah, yeah. I think it's still very new research um, and there's more research in rodents um, and the health impacts. And there's, I think, only been one real study on on humans. Um, And that was actually with, I think it was with Sudonychia, if I remember, because it was somewhere in the Pacific Northwest um, looking at Native American tribes that eat this particular kind of clam. Um, And they saw some impacts on people who ate a lot of these clams. They were pretty small, um, but they were, yeah. um, Significant enough. They they were significant. They weren't significant enough that these people would be considered to have like a disease, but they were effects on their memory. Sure. Um, Like statistically. Statistically significant. significant. Yeah. Yeah, So it was interesting. Um, I know from my undergraduate work that one of the challenges in my thesis uh, was that this is relatively new research when compared with other topics. And uh, your article mentions the research has been going on for only about 30 years. And now, of course, it's reached new highs of relevance with all the health and environmental crises going on in the past decade. How was it for you reporting on this kind of science? Specifically, the the age of the field came up in trying to think about uh, climate change, because that's sort of everyone's big question around these algae blooms is, are they going to get worse or how will they change as the climate changes? But the fact that we only have about three decades or so of, of serious data on the, on the algae and on the conditions that affect them made it really hard for any scientist to definitively say this is how things are going to change in the future. Um, so that, that was hard because, you know, editors and because they know readers want this <laughs> and the people yeah. in Florida want this. We want, want definitive answers. answers. Yeah, yeah we people know. want answers. And uh, the the answer about algae and climate change is basically that, like, it's complicated and it's probably going to be different everywhere and nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just, by the way, for all our listeners, um, I just want to mention that you can easily access links to all of the podcast featured articles on SoCalScienceWriting.com slash podcast. But for our listeners who might not have read the article yet, uh, can you give a little bit more of just a general overview about the story and the science involved. Well, I'll start with giving just a little overview of of the bloom in Florida. So basically, I think starting about two or three summers ago, there was what's called a a red tide in Florida. So this is just a a bloom of, there are different kinds of algae that can cause a red tide. But uh, in Florida, it's Carinia brevis, is this algae that's always in the water, but for some reason, no one knows exactly why, periodically uh, it blooms in these huge concentrations and it releases these brevitoxins, which are very poisonous to marine life. They're poisonous to humans too, but it's easy to avoid by not eating 
shellfish and things like that. But yeah, so it happens every now and then in Florida, but a couple years ago, and it, and it usually just lasts for a few weeks or a few months in the summer and then kind of disperses as the winds change and the weather changes. But for whatever reason, this bloom just didn't go away. It lasted and it stayed in really, really high concentrations for several months. Um, and this was... Oh, right. It, yeah. it went through, like you said, like winter turned into spring mm-hmm. and then it was, mm-hmm. it was still there. Yeah, yeah. And this, and it was really uh, obviously disruptive in Florida. And it was, it was in this big tourism area and you could see, so I went to Florida uh, during the bloom and first of all, the water is just sort of dark and this like reddish green color. And also you can feel it in your lungs when you breathe on the beach. If there's a tide happening, the toxins are sort of uh, dispersed into the air. And so when you breathe in, it kind of stings and it makes you cough. Um, right. Yeah. I hear they say like people with asthma, like during these yeah. rooms, like you need to stay away from Yeah. The they had and... like higher amounts of people in the emergency room, I think. Um, oh, man. And there's also like just dead fish on the beach, which is like pretty gross. So it smells bad just from all the dead fish. And they're floating in the water and they're on the beach. So And so this it was terrible for tourism along the whole like southwestern coast. And people who lived there were really disturbed by it. Like they didn't want to go to the beach. Everyone was pretty upset. Of course. And, and then all yeah. those businesses are losing yeah. business. Yeah. They lost a ton of money. a whole trickle down effect. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I went to Florida while this bloom was happening and I tagged along with some scientists who worked at the Moat Marine Laboratory. They were uh, Gretchen Lovewell and Rebecca Hazelcorn. Um, and they're both marine biologists and they... Great names. Yeah, I know. They're great names. <laughs> great names. <laughs> they were very cool ladies. Um, and so they normally throughout the year, they respond to strandings. They're sort of the marine mammal rescue team. We have the same thing in California. Um, and so they'll go help animals that are sick and stuck on the beach or recover a dead animal and do... Uh, necropsies on them to figure out what happened like an autopsy for but yeah necropsy for, is an autopsy for an animal, for an animal. i think um <laughs> so i was i actually watched them do they had a ton of turtles because so many turtles had died um during the bloom so i i observed them doing necropsies of the turtles and it was the worst smells i've ever experienced their whole necro like you could smell it before you got into the cold room where they do it and then it was just the most physical like disgusting smell I've ever experienced but they were really good at it and they yeah but anyway so besides watching them do the turtles I I went along with them as they went to recover a manatee that was had just shown up in one of the canals I forget where it was it was like near Sarasota in Florida and they had seen you know dozens and dozens of manatees showing up dead over the course of the bloom and overall there were a few hundred who died um yeah in in the thing that you read in the beginning Hazelcorn and Lovell brought manatee number 209. Yeah. Yeah, so that doesn't, um, it wasn't all 200 of them that died from the red tide. Okay. There's a certain number that die every year, you know, of natural causes or encounters okay. with boats. But it was over 100 at least who died of the red yeah, tide. Yeah, definitely an increase. Yeah. Everyone was upset about the bloom and wanted to know what happened. And people were taking different sides. It's happening because of the pollution or it's just natural. Um, And so the public really wanted answers and and wanted the scientists to say it's pollution or it's climate change or it's none of those things. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. Um, Because one of the things that I'm finding, more so than ever, I'm finding that environmental and ecological issues seem to be becoming like partisan issues and 
To me, that's not right. But this sounds like it was political in a little bit of a different way. Yeah, I mean, I think that the um, in the same way that I think other natural disasters can do this, the bloom in Florida, it was obvious that it affected everyone, you know? So I think that it was um, not necessarily partisan lines that, you know, divided people. Although it was the Republican governor took a lot of heat for basically um, getting a lot of blame for not cracking down on polluters in Florida. A lot of people blamed pollution from especially um, sugar farms in Florida for putting pollution into the water that, that they were saying fed the bloom and made it worse. So that so it became, you know, the, the bloom was happening at the same time as the um, Senate and governor races in Florida. So the algae bloom actually became came up in like all the different debates and everyone is like, what are your plans for how to deal with this? What is your environmental policy? How are you going to deal with this problem? But the thing is, it wasn't totally clear that the pollution is what was making this bloom so bad. It right. might have contributed to some way, but it wasn't obvious that like, oh, you just passed this new law to control runoff and that'll make it so that a bloom like this doesn't happen again. Right. So it became political when maybe politics wasn't the solution. Maybe there is no solution. And so that was pretty interesting to see. It makes sense because you want conclusive scientific evidence in order to, you know, uh, have an influence mm-hmm. on what that policy is actually going to be. Totally. Yeah. It was extra. I'll just add one thing too. Yeah. It was extra confusing because at the same time as this red tide was happening in the ocean, there's actually a very bad freshwater algae bloom happening at the same time in a lot of the canals and, oh. and lakes in Florida. And that is very directly correlated with pollution and also with, with climate change, with warming water. And that was destructive in its own way, but it did seem like, from what I could observe from the news coverage and from political activism and stuff, it seemed like those two blooms were getting a little bit conflated. Like when, together. Yeah, when the causes for them... The freshwater algae, from what I understand, the causes were a little bit more clear and well-known. Yeah, and it, it does make sense as far as runoff, um, for people listening, it's runoff from farms and uh, it's basically like fertilizer that contains all of these nutrients. Uh, nutrients, fertilizer, they make plants grow. Algae are plants. It seems like a logical conclusion that runoff would increase those so in a small freshwater area that seems like it would be likely in the larger ocean I think that it makes sense that that would be a little bit harder to pin down yeah Um, it's really interesting to hear about a story where they're like we need answers now we need answers now when there are so many things that you know we have evidence for and that are proved that totally that just sort of like go yeah yeah and that's the point I was trying to make at the end is sort of like okay this is one particular issue where we don't know exactly what's happening we don't know exactly what the human contribution is in terms of pollution or in terms of climate change and there's going to be other stuff like that that comes up like now that we're living in this era of climate change there will be hurricanes or flooding or different things that happen and and everyone is going to want to know right away like is this climate change why is this happening And we might not always be able to answer that, but the big message is that, you know, we made the climate change. It happened. And, like, if people would just listen to that bigger picture idea or if, you know, that was taken at face value, then maybe we wouldn't be in the situation where the world is just changing around us in a way that is really hard to understand. 
Um, yeah. It's a really complicated system. <laughs> and we won't always be able to say this was caused by human pollution. This was caused by climate change. But we do have a good understanding of a big picture problem that we should have been dealing with a lot sooner. Right. Well, because in general, climate changes, mm-hmm. the world changes, um, geography has changed, the, the positions yeah. of our continents have changed, totally. um, but that's had an effect on other things. I, I just read an article from the Natural History Museum about climate change, and I think I understand it better than I ever have in mm. the past. I'm like, oh yeah, like, you know, climate's been changing for so long by by itself, and I'm like, but wow, look at look at what we did as humans and look at how we did that and it doesn't have to be an accusatory like we're horrible people for mm-hmm. doing this it's just like this is what happened as a result of our actions and yeah now how how do we mitigate it uh, to me the first step is not denying that yeah. but that's my personal <laughs> opinion uh so mentioning talking about the end I actually have in my notes here I um I'd love to read uh part of the end because I thought it was really nicely put Um, and I like to always talk kind of towards the end of the podcast. I like to talk about the writing and the communication of the science. And this is also for science writers and communicators. Uh, hopefully they can get something out of listening to this as well. So I'm going to read this little part at the end that I really, that really (laughs) resonated with me. How nice of you. As the natural world becomes less hospitable, the public will increasingly turn to scientists for explanations and solutions. But the progress of research is slow and usually proceeds with a healthy helping of uncertainty. I like that healthy helping. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, we've ignored one certainty that scientists have repeated for years. We are fundamentally changing the environment. Now, as we watch that change unfold, we will have to accept that our actions have upended a system whose complexity we had yet to grasp. Can you talk a little bit about maybe your process for writing? Um, I I know that you uh, got the UC Berkeley Food and Farming Writing Fellowship. I'd love to hear about that too. And then also how uh, this story, you ended up getting um, this story in with popular science. Yeah. Well, I can start with the fellowship because that sort of came first. And yeah, as as I mentioned earlier, I sort of had this idea that I wanted to write something about algae blooms um, and how they were or might be changing around the world. And I applied with that. And the fellowship is amazing. I would say like as a, I mean, I'm a freelancer. I work from home. I have, you know, friends in the SoCal Science Writing Group that keep me company. But in general, it can be sort of lonely and you don't always have the opportunity to talk to people about your craft and, and your work and just what you think all the normal things that if you went into an office and had colleagues, you would talk about, you know, what are you doing on a daily basis? What is your career like overall? What are different things you should be thinking about? So I I would definitely recommend for freelancers applying for fellowships in general can provide some of that sort of camaraderie and just people to talk to. This fellowship in particular was amazing. Um, Really recommend anyone apply to it. And so it was two sessions. You go to Berkeley for five days in the summer, like in June. Um, and there you really workshop your pitch for the story. So the idea is most people are writing like either a magazine article, maybe a series of short stories, or they're doing a a podcast, some kind of audio series or episode. Um, so you really workshop and talk about your story idea and your pitch and come up with a reporting plan. And then you meet again in December. And the idea is at this point that you will have placed the piece and you'll talk more about, you know, a draft if you have one, your reporting plans, things like that. And 
Yeah, they bring in amazing guest editors. We had a guest editor from The New Yorker who was there, and it was just fascinating to hear about the process. Yeah, I mean, first of all, just, you know, it's the highest level of editing you can get. It was great to get her yeah. feedback. And then also to be able to just sort of ask her in a nice setting some of these nuts and bolts questions like how <laughs> annoying is it if I cold call my editor because they haven't responded to my emails in weeks um <laughs> and so yeah it was all just helpful and it was a great group of other reporters to get to work with and they just give you money that you can do whatever you want with so I just Money's had the funding good. from them and I hadn't <laughs> even placed the story yet I hadn't pitched it and then when I saw in the news that this bloom was happening in Florida I was like I'll just go there which isn't the normal thing I would ever do because I, I wouldn't really go use my own money to go on a reporting trip if I hadn't placed a story but because I had these funds um I was able to do that which was great and I'm really glad I did because if I hadn't I don't know what the story would be like it was just really perfect that this happened in Florida at the time when I was trying to write about algae bloom yeah that's really interesting so you had you basically did the story before it was placed well if Ish. <laughs> conceivably I'm not the kind of person who will ever write anything before I have a deadline <laughs> so I reported a lot of the story before it was placed I sure. definitely did most of the reporting already I'd gone to Florida I'd interviewed a ton of people on the phone but I didn't write it and then I wrote the whole thing in like a couple days before I turned it in so <laughs> thank you for your candor uh, <laughs> writing is difficult writing is difficult sitting down putting that pen to the paper you can have it in your head for forever but Taking that step of sitting down, opening, looking at page, and I feel like once I do that, it like sort of flows a little bit. But yeah, it's just opening the document is like the hardest part, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which no one who hasn't tried to write could ever understand. They'd be like, "What is wrong with you?" <laughs> and then, so how did you get connected with Popular Science? I'm trying to remember how I ended up. I had never written for them before. I that's inspiring. Yeah. I first pitched, I had an editor from Wired who I'd worked with before, and he, yeah, it's a great editor, I really like working with him, and he wrote a letter for me for the fellowship. So I pitched him first, though I kind of knew it wasn't really a Wired story, um, but I wanted to, to give, yeah, to just pitch him first since he had been so nice and helped, and they didn't want it. Um, and then I don't know how popular science ended up on my radar. I can't remember. And the editor I worked with, she was in a – she used to work at Wired, so I think that helped a little because I've written for them before. Okay. Um, and she had actually seen some of my work before, which was nice. I'm always surprised when that happens. Um, and I pitched her – I think I got connected to her through uh, another journalism group I'm in, the JAWS. Um, it's a women's journalism group. Oh, cool. Um, so I think I first got connected to her through there and then sent her a pitch. Um, and I can really recommend working with them. It was great, and they pay well. This, yeah, this was a print story. They pay as well as, as Condé Nast. Or, uh, great. So you got the fellowship, and then you got Yeah, the, so hey, that was cool. I mean, and it awesome. was a good deal for them. That's another nice thing about fellowships. You know, it's a good deal for them because my travel and reporting was paid for. So they only have right. to pay for the article. They don't have to pay my expenses. Awesome. Um, great. I think yeah. that does it for this episode. Uh, cool. Thank you so much, Mallory, for taking the time to talk to me today and on being on the Science Podcast. If listeners want to get in touch with you, is there a place for them to do that or can they find you on social media? Yeah, definitely. I'm on Twitter. Uh, my email is on my website. So you can go to MalloryPickett.com and find my email. 
I should say as we're taping this that I'm like about to have a baby. <laughs> so <laughs> Yay, congratulations. I can't guarantee that I'll be super responsive in the next, you know, the summer of 2019. But after that, I always love to talk to people. I'd be happy to talk about the fellowship or popular science or anything else. I think, you know, us writers and freelancers have to stick together and help each other out. So happy Aww. to talk to anyone. Well, thank you. I definitely really appreciate um, your friendship and getting to know you. Mallory has been already so so helpful to me (laughs) in my science writing journey. Also, uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram at Scienced Podcast. I'm also on those places at Jesse Science. That's J-E-S-S-I-E. And if you're local and looking for more information about SoCal science writing events, we have events all year long. You can find all of that along with other links for the podcast at www.socalsciencewriting.com. Also, if you want to get in touch with us or have any questions uh, we can answer on a future episode, you can write us at sciencedpodcast at gmail.com. Scienced is produced and edited by me. Our theme music was composed by Zach Heidi. Our logo designed by Jamie Fritz. Please don't forget to leave us a review and share our episodes if you think your friends might like it. Thank you again, everyone, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Scienced, a SoCal Science Writers podcast.